Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Yes, I think you mentioned about Vietnam especially, and today morning itself, I saw. uh that uh, vietnam has resumed is stronger more stronger ties with china because i think there is a currently a communist party which is ruling the country at the moment and i think yeah in the coming years we might see some more movements uh, as you know the tensions between china and tai- taiwan keep on rising uh, i'm i'm not sure how this whole scenario is going to evolve especially given the fact that even north korea now has a uh good space capabilities of course uh, in collaboration with russia uh, because without their support they wouldn't have launched a successful satellite as well recently yeah well i think <clears throat> vietnam has long hated china whether it's a communist government or not i mean let's not forget that vietnam versus yeah. china goes back a thousand years um yes. of chinese attempted conquest the vietnamese have always successfully fought back which is an amazing story in 1979 1980 after the vietnamese you know fought a war against super two superpowers france and the united states and won they then fought the khmer rouge in cambodia and won and then you know china used its million man army to invade vietnam after 30 years of fighting the vietnam the vietnamese kicked their butt <laughs> and that was yes. communist on communist you know uh warfare yeah. and i don't think that's changed i don't think you know a thousand years of anti chinese um you know you know anti chinese sentiment doesn't go away i think they're making out pragmatic overtures to china but i think they're doing the same with the united states mm-hmm. um but let's also forget that china's offended vietnam by by underground cutting like internet cables and you know they, they've done you know in the south china sea which you know the the chinese have deeply offended the vietnamese um yes. so i wouldn't look for an alliance there unless it's extremely expedient and pragmatic but if that's the case it probably doesn't have a lot of duration uh a lot yes. of um you know but um but in terms of other things um amkar what 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 were you asking what you trying to get at Yeah so Vietnam. I was getting to the point of uh, sovereign capabilities so how how mm-hmm. can nations uh, balance sovereign concerns with the need for collaborative measures in the future how do they balance need for sovereign capabilities with um, collaborative security missions yeah. collaborative security missions so mm-hmm. what what's the what's the question like how do they if if their interests uh, don't align yeah exactly so we are seeing this at the moment in europe where hungary hungary yeah. has mostly a complete i would say a different view as compared to what other european state have 
about the right. ukraine war and of course uh, even in france as well we have seen like i i'm based here in france and i see a lot of my uh, colleagues and the industry experts as well uh, their thoughts have also changed you know but you know the thing is like you are a part of an alliance and even if sometimes even if you don't like some decisions you still have to align it align with them right so with that respect how can you balance the sovereignty and you know the collaborative security measures initiatives well this is always the challenge of all alliances is how do you maintain uh an alliance and avoid defection and yes. this is a collective security action problem this is a um and we've seen this throughout nato but you know nato in the cold war the threat was very clear and very palpable and that is a, a nuclear threat and that's what kept central and western europe together now in the last 30 years nato switched after the cold war from being a uh a, a defensive alliance into more of a democracy promotion alliance and that has left a lot of countries not so sure about it because democracy is messy and you have countries today like Hungary and Turkey who are very adept at manipulating this and have their own skepticism about it. And at the same time, Russia is using disinformation and trying to manipulate elections to support right-wing nationalist parties across the European Union, like Marine Le Pen, so who want to break up the European Union, who want to break up NATO or at least weaken yes. it, which is exactly what Moscow's strategic interests have always been to to break up the EU, to break up NATO, to make it a weaker European Union because, yes. you know, you know, it's weaker that way. So I think that they're achieving this not through threats of force or through, you know, military um, you know, demonstrations are doing this through, you know, disinformation through all these other sneaky ways. And I think they also support rulers like, uh, like Orban and so, and so forth. And I think that, um, Hungary is, this is one of the challenges of NATO and can NATO really become relevant? I mean, beyond the shore show of force in 2022, NATO has like this veneer of we're shiny and new again, but under that veneer, there's a lot of questions being asked. There's a lot of misgivings. There's a lot of donor fatigue around Ukraine. There's still a lot of questions like would the U.S. even commit to NATO in a Trump presidency if if the if Russia went someplace into NATO? So I think that um, NATO's future is not set in stone. I think it's set in graphite and pencil. Yes, so I think uh, I really agree with you actually on this perspective and we have seen that NATO's goal has, you know, blurred over the years until uh, Ukraine brought back the spotlight. Of course, we still see a little more disagreement from countries like uh, Hungary also on how to deal uh, in such situations. They are still not agreeing with the way NATO is dealing at the moment. So what are your thoughts on uh, such situations of NATO and how it can effectively and how, I mean primarily the NATO as an organization, how it can effectively use its financial resources to prepare for future conflicts so that, you know, uh, yeah. things are much more manageable and not, you know, yeah. uh, uh, in a situation where adversaries will take a uh, lot of advantage of this. 
Yeah, I think I'm a, I'm a I'm a big critic of NATO. Uh, I wanted it to achieve its potential, but it is stuck in the past. It is well, first of all, it's become like this gigantic bureaucracy that is you know overfed and 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 it, it as they say it it doesn't it produces a lot of heat but not a lot of light. It's just an expensive bureaucracy that shuns innovation that is looking. You know, it thinks it's looking forward, but looking in the rearview mirror, it, it's thinking still about how would we, you know, it's still basically looking at World War II era tactics and strategy in the 21st century, which is ridiculous, absolutely ludicrous. It needs to evolve its strategic way of warfare so it catches up with its adversaries. It catches up with 21st century war. They seem incapable of doing so. It's very expensive. It's very ineffective. They're putting their money into things like conventional warfare, thinking that a conventional warfare has a deterrent effect. It does not. Nuclear weapons deter Russia, but conventional warfare does not. Um, you know, it's not working. Conventional warfare is also not working in the South China Sea or in the Persian Gulf um, against China or Iran. Um, and it also it thinks that, and here's the real folly of NATO. It thinks that if Russia and NATO go to war, they can have a conventional fight and duke it out, and that will become victory, like it's 1945. But let me tell you something. Nuclear great powers don't fight conventional wars. The reason is, is it can go nuclear any second. And nuclear war, of course, is the ultimate unconventional war. And this is what made the Cuban Missile Crisis a crisis. This is why NATO troops and Soviet troops worked hard never to be in the same grid space so there wouldn't be accidental war that could escalate into World War III like, you know, like, you know, Sarajevo in 1914, but it's a nuclear situation. It doesn't take four years to resolve. It takes 40 minutes to resolve. So the idea that, that NATO is... Is, is sucking all these money and all these resources to fighting an obsolete way of war that will never happen in a nuclear war age. And we have evidence of this in the last 70 years of the Cold War. It shows to me the low strategic IQ of NATO. So I think NATO should either be abolished or updated. And if we're going to update it, we need, we need somebody who can go in there like a strong impresario who's a strategic genius and has, you know, the authority to hire and fire people and to, you know, because right now NATO is an ossified institution and desperate need of reform. And we should not continue to feed that beast. We should innovate. Yes, I think uh, just to, you know, I would say a little bit broaden the horizon. Uh, and this is again, you know, from the military alliances perspective, for diplomatic challenges and opportunities arise as military alliances evolve in responding to emerging threats. Right. Well, I think the bigger the alliance like NATO, the less flexible is it is. Now, I think there are some very clever people in NATO. I think the problem is with the institution and not the people and giving voice to those those pockets of thinkers, doers who have been working with this type of warfare on the front lines. That is what's needed and not political appointees or bureaucrats, but people who are coming from this front line of warfare. And you see Eastern countries like Poland and like the Baltics embracing 
and Sweden now of all places, embracing this new way of warfare that you have to fight sneaky and not hard. That's it's very irregular. We're seeing Eastern uh, countries evolve and adapt to this a lot more quickly than Western countries. So I th in in NATO alliance. So I think the trick is is to give voice and give space for them to have you know, some authority in the strategic conversation about NATO's future and not just let bureaucratic inertia carry the day forward. So I don't think NATO's dead. I think it has great potential. I just think we need to help catalyze that potential and not sort of remains mired in past, past warfare and sort of the way things have always been in bureaucracy, et cetera. Yes. Yeah, I hope uh, things change with time. And there is much more uh, healthier cooperation between the nations in the future. And, uh, you know, just to step into the boots of the geopolitical landscape. So how do the geopolitical power, power dynamics impact the formation and effectiveness of military alliances? Well, I think that um, a couple of things. I think in the state system, uh, the, sort of the yes. Westphalian system, we're seeing the emergence. We've gone from a bipolar moment of the Cold War to a unipolar moment of the United States, which has been, I think, squandered in the last 30 years, to now a multipolar moment of you have the United States, but you have China, uh, but you also have Russia and Iran and uh, other powers, revanchist powers who are trying to reclaim some sort of past glory the way China and Russia does. And they're talking now in terms of we are a civilization state. We're above just a normal state like France or or Morocco. We're, we're a civilization state. We've been around for millennia, whether that's true or not. And um, which invokes a lot of, you know, it's it's a very um and they're they're trying to to cast a world order away from the US's world order. You know, the US wants a rules-based order, but they want a rules-based order in the US image. And China and Russia want the same thing, and they want it in their image. And so I think that that is going to change alliance structure, because I think countries are pragmatic. They just want to get on the, the winning side. And I think many of them, well, it depends who you talk to. Do, do you want a messy democratic model, or do you want a, a strong autocratic stable model, but the risk of tyranny? And um, so I, I think that is that is now on the question for countries and that and then military alliances will fall fall into formation after that. But I think there's another big X factor people aren't looking about, and that's the rise continually of non-state actors as quasi superpowers. And I'm not talking just about, you know, Al Qaeda and ISIS. And by the way, that's not gone away. I mean, you know, religious extremism is is not gone away. They it manifests in different versions, whether it's Al Qaeda or ISIS or or Hamas or Hezbollah on the Shia side. Um, but I do think that we're also seeing the rise of multinational corporations, uh, you know, super rich individuals like Elon Musk, who now have access to mercenaries and private CIA's and private MI6s. And they are becoming less and less beholden to a state system. And now will they have their own international security interests and they will find ways to achieve them, either through countries by or with countries or by hiring mercenaries and just carving out, carving out whatever they, whatever they need. So, for example, there is... Um, 
you know, what oil was to the 20th century geopolitics, rare earth minerals are becoming now to 21st century. All the green technology depends on rare earth minerals, all like quantum computing, microchips. It all depends on rare earth minerals and all the easy places in the world have been mined. And so that leaves only the hard places like in war zones, like Afghanistan, like Central Africa. And China, through Belt Road Initiative, is trying to get there. And so are other, other, you know, Russia, through the Wagner Group, is trying to get there. And, you know, Western countries are also trying to get there, too. Well, now what happens if extractive industry? What happens if a gigantic, you know, you know, uh, you know gold copper mine, you know, mining company that's multinational hires mercenaries to go into Africa, carve out its own fiefdom, kick out the government there and make it like it's like the Middle Ages. And they they mine it and they smuggle the cobalt or whatever back to China, back to France, back to wherever. So I think yes. that's something that people geopolitically don't think about. They're they're, they're very state centric. And the, the, in the middle of the 21st century, states will have a role, but it, it might just be one amongst others. It might even be a minority role in geopolitics. And I don't think just having nuclear weapons puts you into a special club when you're dealing with economic warfare and multinational corporations can wage economic warfare. And the Cold War doesn't teach us much about economic warfare because there was none, because there are two economic blocks, the communist block and the free trade block. Now it's yes. one global free trade block. And anybody who's got economic power, whether they be France or the US or Elon Musk or Amazon, can now wage economic warfare on their own for their own interests. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, what you have mentioned is is a, in a very extended manner. And I would just like to add on that, uh, like NATO, along with, you know, several other NATO member states, I would specifically point out, they have this go growing interest in Indo-Pacific. Indo uh, especially, uh, we have seen United States, Japan, India, and Australia they have been they they have come together with a, a group called as quad uh, which is currently extensively cooperating on defense security as well as on the economic issues the primary motive is to reduce the chinese dependence uh, in this region and recently we saw uh, i think last week only where uh, france has opened a dedicated defense operation units uh, for training purposes in the Indo-Pacific region, because of course, French there are French territories like uh, New Caledonia. So we see this growing interest. Of course, one of the reason, one of the prime reason is economy, uh, because the kind of economic, uh, I mean, both on the good and the bad side, uh, we see the Indo-Pacific region, uh, or I would say also mentioned the South Asia is also responsible for a lot of illegal maritime uh, smuggling. Uh, which currently happens as well. And I think uh, there, there's a, you know, there are huge scoops that can be taken up by, by, by several adversary nations in it. And it will be interesting to see if NATO fully gets involved in such uh, issues, you know, where, I mean, geographically, it's very different, you know, this region is completely different. But yeah, the engagement of full-scale NATO member states, like all the member states in this issue, how it will evolve in the future will be interesting to observe for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a question amongst um, Asian Pacific countries, should they create their own NATO? 
And there used to be in in the 50s and 60s something called CETO, which was like NATO, but it was just a paper tiger. And um, but the problem, again, comes down to Republicans, United States, half of America would not support it, at least saying, why do we want to get sucked into somebody else's war again? Uh, And they're not going to it's going to be like NATO. They're not going to pay their taxes. So um, so I think rather than creating a NATO like alliance in as a buffer and a counter to China. Some people yes. are talking about extending NATO into the South China Sea, which I think is overreach. Um, yes. I mean, first of all, NATO couldn't solve the Taliban, which is pretty easy compared to China. And so I don't know why we're thinking that NATO is the solution. And, you know, NATO navies, I mean, is that really, I, I just think it's kind of a, um, some people are talking about it. I think it's foolhardy. Um, and I think that there's a lot of countries, again, like will Hungary or Bulgaria really want to do that? Um, and yes. some of them, China is still a big trading partner for them. And Chinese BRI yes. is is a big deal, like in in, in Greece. So I, I just don't see NATO in, you know, the South China Sea or NATO on Asia on land as being a serious um, course of action. Um, Some people want to expand NATO. I think, again, in my opinion, NATO, rather than expanding, it needs to think about its concept of warfare. What does victory look like for NATO and how is it planned on achieving that? Rather than just sort of feeding the bureaucracy and there's more tanks and it's 1946. So I think NATO has to do some homework before it can start thinking about expanding elsewhere. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I agree with your perspective, actually, because uh, a few of the guests who came on my podcast had a similar reaction. They said, you know, uh, there is not much talk about the achievements because it's a mixed bag of a lot of things (laughs) from the NATO side. So, yeah, and uh, I think yeah, we are preaching at the end of the podcast now. And yeah, th- this final question is uh, not actually related to our topic that we're discussing. Uh, but, you know, there are several student researchers and a lot of, you know, postdoc people as well uh, who listen to this podcast. So this question is specifically for them. And I believe every expert who comes on this podcast has some of the other uh, key points or anecdotes to share. Uh, with the future leaders, that is students, researchers who would like to, you know, step and expand their horizon uh, in this sector. So this question is dedicatedly for them. So lastly, what message would you like to share with student researchers and other stakeholders willing to participate and engage in defense, intelligence and security studies? Well, I think um, to students who want to enter this field in some regard, no matter what it is, the I, my advice is this. You have to play an outside and inside game. On the outside, you have to, as I say, kiss the ring. There are paradigms <laughs> out there and you need to yes. you need to respect that and you need to play that game. All right. Yes. Um, just like you do with, with your, uh, your dissertation committee. You know, political science, international relations has clicks and views of things, and you may not agree with them, but to get through your, your you know, literature review, you have to sort of kiss the ring of the seminal books in the world, even though you don't think that they're, they're seminal or relevant anymore. That's the outside game. On the inside game, you have a duty to be a critical and creative thinker, to, to greet everything with skepticism, every paradigm you meet. 
greet it with skepticism, whether it's uh, an academic paradigm, uh, whether it's, you know, NATO or the EU or your country's strategic culture or whatever, or conventional warfare, ask yourself, do you think it's still relevant? Because you are young and you're not an old guy like me and old people tend to be, they, they tend to make up their mind at some point in their career and that's sort of the way it is. It's very rare to find an older, older mind who's flexible and open to new ideas. Most of what they do is when they see something new, they engage in rationalization or cognitive dissonance. And it's up to you to be a thought entrepreneur to greet that with skepticism and develop your own and maintain your own perspective so that when you get to a level where you can start voicing your perspective and it starts being taken seriously and your intuitions, you are not lobotomized. That's my advice. Sure. Thank you very much, uh, Sean, for sharing this valuable insights. And yeah, there were several, several, I think, points and topics that came up and I would definitely love to host you on several other episodes on such topics sure. in the future. Uh, so yeah, thank of you course. very much again for your time. Uh, yeah, I hope of course, anytime. Yes, sure. Well, my pleasure. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.